everybody, and welcome back to Don't Quit Your Day Job. My name is Paul. I am your host, as is the usual. Today, from the Big Apple, I have singer-songwriter, member of Hollis Brown, Chris Uriola. Chris, thanks for uh, coming on the show. Hey, Paul. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Absolutely. So, I can see a flag behind you that says Excelsior. Uh, <laughs> so I'm presuming you're at your day job. Is that right? Yep. I'm in my office and, uh, I work as an expediter. So if you're familiar with New York city, um, expediters are like this middleman between architects and, and landlords or even tenants. We help everyone, but I had helped this church in Maspeth Queens, uh, in the far, far outskirts. And they had this old flag that was pretty decrepit. So I, I managed to wash the flag. I said, Hey, can I keep this flag? And uh, put it on my wall, you know, an heirloom from the job. Basically, that's, that's cool. So, so what's the name of the, the role again? So that's called an expediter. An expediter. And, uh, you know, some, some people have disdain for that word, but it really, when it comes down to it, it's the middleman. Okay. Uh, communicates with everyone, which helps because I went to school for music management and if you're not managing an artist, musical artist, I thought, you know, why not manage an architect to get them the gigs? Right. And of course, I'll help them with it. So it's the same type of ethos. You know, you're always looking for the gig. Although I have one rule when it comes to it is uh, no pet projects. So, you know, I don't want to build your new pool. I don't want to do anything <laughs> new. It's all the old stuff. Because that's really where the my priority lies is kind of cleaning up things rather right. than making right. a mess. So then are you working for yourself or are you working for a company? Yep, that's uh, my own company. I've been doing it for about almost 12 years now, which is a lot of fun because I go on tours uh, early on and, you know, with my rock band, my old, old rock band called The Bottom Dollars, which funny enough, you mentioned Hollis Brown. It was like the concurrent band. They were touring at the same time. Okay. So, but uh, long story short, you know, the, the people with my bandmates would laugh at me because I'd answer the phone for a client. You know, I'm age 22 or 24. Uh, good afternoon. This is Chris. <laughs> it was just a total different world from uh, rocking out at South by Southwest. You know, that's it's that's super interesting, though, the the parallels that you're drawing between your day job and, and being a musician. And of course, we're going to talk about your music here in a second. But um, the hustle, I think, is a, is a common thread, right? If you're a musician, you're constantly hustling trying to get the shows or the band and you're kind of doing the same thing, right? Yeah. And, you know, I can say that I'm more comfortable now, um, not seeking, you know, the gigs. I remember in college, I went to Berkeley college of music and I remember it was like a brand new year, year 2005, sophomore year of, of uh, college. And I just wrote on my phone, it was a flip phone from Verizon. I wrote, yo, play shows. It was like the first day of the year. And I just wrote that <laughs> on my like message to myself, yo, right. play shows. And that kicked off the constant search for gigs. But, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit older now. And I, I don't have that urgency because I want really good gigs. Right. I want really fantastic gigs. And we'll talk about my EP release that took place a couple of weeks ago. Right. You know, that's a great example of just like a fantastic gig. And, and that's the goal, you know, it's just patience and output and slowly just, you know, feeding, feeding the marketplace with some, some new quality music. So let's, then let's start with, with Hollis Brown, bass player in Hollis Brown. I know that you were an original member, but, but you joined the band and have done some records with them. Um, is what you're doing with your solo stuff 
directly related to, to Hollis Brown because there certainly is some overlap in my opinion, but it's not the same. Um, I can say that with John Bonilla and Mike Montali, the, the, the actual founders right. of the band, and, and it's funny as a bass player, I'm like the equivalent of the spinal tap drummer. I think I'm like the 12th <laughs> bass player for that band. You know, they've really went through the ringer. And that was always like the funny joke. I think I even got hazed because I was number 12. But hey, I lasted the longest, I think. So that right. works for me. Right. But, um, but my music, the solo music was definitely influenced by Mike and John from Hollis Brown's writing, you know, I, from learning their catalog. And that was the reason why I accepted that position as bass player, as, as, as member of that band, is I love the longevity of the music. The same CD, you know, I just purchased a Roy Orbison Best Of CD yeah. and a number yeah. of CDs this, when I went out for lunch. You know, their albums can last, and that's what I love about it, and that's what drawn me to the music. And I think, you know, with the music that I'm creating, I want to get better lyrics like Mike Montali. You know, right. I want to, those are things I strive for, but it's a step-by-step -step process. But they definitely influence me uh, in, in how I write and and create. One, one of the things I think is interesting about Hollis Brown, uh, one more thing before we move on, and that's the in the Aftermath record. So the idea to take an Old Stones record and just play the whole thing front to back and release that, uh, similar stylistically to like what Liz Fair did all those years ago with Exile and Guyville. Um, even though she wasn't playing the songs, it was more of a response. This is really playing those songs. How does that inform an artist? So, so where's the joy in, in the creation there? Uh, coming from, you know, when I hear the word tribute, you know, I think of that old tribute right. band that we always heard of. You know, you have your cover band and then you have the tribute band, which is a next level. So when they said we're going to do a tribute album, I said, I really need to become Bill Wyman. I need to feel what he felt in okay. those sessions. And that's the attitude I take towards covers in general. You know, I encompass the, the, the bass playing performance because that bass line is the song. Yes, the guitar can do what they do. The drums can vary it a little bit, but really the bass line, I always have great respect for a written line. That's the way I play and create. And um, I felt an immense joy in executing that performance of finding what Bill did and, and, and feeling that. Granted, it wasn't the exact tone, but I was able to dig in, right. go online and find some awesome YouTube uh performances of folks covering this to the T and figuring out exactly, hey, how did he do that? What is going on here? And, and the real joy of that album is it is a pop record. The songs, to a degree, the cycles repeat, the parts repeat over and over mm -hmm. again. Um, and then, of course, you just drop the lyrics on top in the vocal performance. So it, it was it was a fun experiment in just executing these lines to the T. And I think I did that. And luckily we got a great response yeah. and folks even remember, folks even mentioned like, all right, they got, they followed the gospel of this album. Right. So the, you know, when, when I went and listened to that and read some of the reviews as, as I prepare for these interviews, uh, the reviews were, were amazing. Right. So the idea that you guys could capture that sort of energy from 50 years ago is, is pretty impressive. Um, Taking a step back now, bass player in, in Hollis Brown, is that why you went to, to Berkeley to, to be a bass player, or did you study something else? 
Uh, yeah, I think I was the kid in college who was like, I know where I'm going to school. I want to be a musician. You know, like <laughs> I think in my creative writing English class, I just only talked about being a musician. It was really funny. But, uh, you know, I I love the bass guitar because um, I just did not want to be left out. Essentially, mm. my best friends who are actually on the EP from like age 11, right. uh, Rob Smaldi and Ian Carroll, you'll see them in the credits there. But they had picked up their instruments. I didn't want to be the odd man out or the odd kid out. And uh, before we knew it, we were covering uh, Fire by Jimi Hendrix at, you know, age 12 and just having a blast. And all the family would always clap. And like, we we're like the band, you know, the yeah. kid band. Yeah, that's cool. Um, and then jump starting to why I went to Berkeley. I am a family of Greek and Ecuadorian descent. My pops always played salsa music. And, and Latin jazz and, and, and Afro-Cuban jazz. There's so many different names for the same right, type of thing. Right. But, uh, but essentially that inspired me to finding that core rhythm. And I, I sought out the bass teacher, Oscar Stagnaro, who is the bass player of Paquito de Rivera amongst you know many other jazz mm -hmm. greats. Um, so that, that was the goal. I said, I want Latin jazz, I want Latin bass. Let's do it, you know, and I, I went for Berkeley. Granted, people have a misconception about Berkeley. It really is a pay to play, at least back in 2002 or 2003 when I enrolled. Um, you know, you pay to get in. So mm -hmm. you do have an audition basically to tell you where you where you fall in your ensembles that you're given. You're okay. you're you know, it's, I always called it the Berkeley College of Magic because everyone has their own superpower. But that's basically like, where do you get placed? in your okay. audition okay, and so out of out of i think eight you know grade of one to eight i was like two in terms of my jazz vocabulary but i could always rock out you know that was yeah. always the the methodology my technique is good but do i know the standard standards at age 18 no i know the police songs and i know yeah. how to play rush you know that's <laughs> what's my so, long story short berkeley was very fruitful in being like this playground i got to join a brazilian percussion ensemble a pop percussion it was just like a a real treat to play whatever you wanted and of course making those connections and carrying those even to this present day i'm um, speaking with engineers and musicians that right. are just we're re always reconvening like a long relationship and, and that's really beneficial i have to say yeah that's cool yeah those uh you know, any successful musician has been able to to create uh, connections and make contacts and carry those through whatever they're they're trying to do. If we jump to the Illustrator EP, um, which you just recently put out, are you viewing that as a bass player, bassist, guitar player, singer, songwriter, vocalist, producer, all of those things, little bits of those things. How are you, when, when we're talking about you as a solo artist, where do, where do all these pieces come together? Um, you know, I look at the elements of the record or of any record for that matter, you know, their requirements. And it's kind of like my expediting brain, uh, you know, taking over the artistic <laughs> brain, but essentially, you know, I need a baseline throw in the baseline. I need the drums, throw in the drums. So I, I guess it's really from a production standpoint, almost like a Bjork approach where okay. I have myself, you know, the yeah. angel of Bjork around yeah. me. I love Bjork so much. <laughs> um, that, that kind of artistry is, is what I demand for myself is, is requiring others to join me 
And it was a real gift getting to, to play this music with my oldest friends. They got to join me in the studio and it was really impromptu, really ad-lib stuff. I had my voice memo of an idea and then we really fleshed it out within an hour per song or an hour and a half, maybe four takes, five takes doing it. But to answer your question, I arrived at that moment really from a quasi-producer, solo artist, you know, the vocalism um, came after the fact, mm -hmm. after just repeated listening, after coming back from a Hollis Brown gig. I remember we were in Jersey and I'm driving myself in the summertime, just like now, and blasting and belting along to just lyrical ideas in the car. I really okay. had a blast that time. Um, but at that time, in the, all the sessions, I am playing rhythm guitar. And you can hear that in maybe the left channel or the right channel. Right. But it's a, it's a mixed, more mixed down guitar line. But I am playing rhythm guitar and just leading everyone, which was a cool experience, given that as a bass player, I can listen to, you know, my buddy Evan Berg, who was typically the drummer of my legacy rock band, The Bottom Dollars. He's joined me on bass. He's switched from drums to bass. Okay. And that's a cool cool um moment to share with another rhythm section member i'm moving from away from the right, bass player right, right. as an introverted person you know i prefer the bass i don't want to look up <laughs> just let me rock out and now i'm going to guitar and he's going to bass so it's two back back-end developers he's also a programmer as well it's two back-end developers really going out front into this into the light and it's a new experience and so far after our shows we've been uh you know, enjoying the process of it all. Cool. This approach to to creating the songs and recording them in the studio, I think is really interesting, especially in the, the modern age where everything is done to a click and everyone's recording their piece and it's time corrected and all of that sort of stuff. Your, your album feels organic. It feels real. Like these are cohesive songs. Um, did you feel weird about giving up sort of your vision of the songs as you were collaborating with other people? Well, I, uh, I found myself to be a bit of a stickler when it came to <laughs> direction. So there was not much that was given up I, uh, to the chagrin of my uh, bandmates there. Um, I did find I was flexible. I was always receptive to different ideas, mm -hmm. but I knew that, in order to get this session completed and and and, and done expediently, um, you know, we're just going to knock it out. Do these th do excuse me. Do these three sections three times. Mm -hmm. You know, any type of any type of arrangement direction was really given from the top down, and the guys followed the directions. Sometimes, if I you know, I believe it was the second session, and this is an upcoming song that will be released. But uh, one of the drummers who I invited, Jeremy Kolker, who's an amazing drummer, he had performed with the Chats, and and uh, also he's has his own band, God Tiny. Um, he came to me during the session. He goes, "Do you even know the song?" You know, he was already busting my chops. I said, <laughs> "Look, just trust me. We got it covered. We're gonna do this nice." And actually, his performance is one of the my favorite drum performances because it has such a unique approach. You know, when they're uncomfortable, the, the performers are uncomfortable, you know, they, they create something, something fills the void yeah. with that uncertainty. And you get a really cool random performance that works musically. And, and right. he definitely captured that. Cool. 
So I did read that you, over this time when you were doing these various recording sessions, you your output ended up being roughly 30 songs. And on this EP, I think it's I think it's five songs. So how how did you decide these are the five songs that are going on Illustrator and I'm going to save these for other moments? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, the words and the lyrics and the vocal harmonies and melodies that that really was the determining factor for what gets released okay. quickest. Um, you know, they, the, the words came quicker. Uh, for example, the last tune, the fourth tune on, um, that was maybe my first tune that I've written. Um, that, you know, it was a very simple tune lyrically, you'll see, but, you know, on and on and on and on. I found that to be like numero uno. And before I knew it, you know, the other tunes just kind of gelled. And I found that the performance of the first tune, Sintro, mm -hmm. on the EP had really caught my ear. I was like, this is magic, just in its raw form, without any mixing, without any magic on it. Uh, I just love the way that it sounded and just the sheer magic in that performance. So they really jumped out. Uh, the completed items just jumped out at me and said, all right, let's put these on first. Right. And with the 30 or, you know, 28 remaining, there's just so many songs I can't even count. Um, that's really the process. I have another four, you know, in line for the next bit of mixing and then I'll track vocals. And it's really just a luxury in terms of right. booking that studio session, having a nice afternoon with Sean Walsh at Walden Studios, formerly known as South First Sound. You know, I would just spend a Sunday there and you tack away at it, basically. Yeah. And, and, and vocal sessions are a lot of fun because you really tap into really the physiology of, of, of your body. Like how, you know, I haven't I haven't breathed this way in a while. I haven't <laughs> built this out. It, it's yeah. really therapeutic. Yeah, cool. Uh, you mentioned Sintro. It's the lead off track on the record. And there is something immediate about it. Immediate was the word that came into my head. Okay, this is a representation of what Chris is attempting to get across. So was that the reason why you put it first? Because there is something very tangible about that song. Yeah, I, uh, I felt that, you know, in the course of the EP, you listen through all 15 minutes of it. It has its own journey. Mm -hmm. And I find with intro, it has such a rushed, uh, not, not tempo performance-wise, but just this hurriedness to it that it almost feels like for me a, as a 37-year-old, I'm really catching up and swimming. You know, I'm late to the race, so to speak, <laughs> and I'm just catching up to the, 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 the race of all these yeah. performers, all these fellow Berkeley musicians right. and, and worldwide musicians that have already put their album out. And so that song feels like just catching up, you know, all right, here we go. I'm, I'm here for you guys. And, and now you can enjoy the EP. So maybe the next EP, I'll have a, a bit of a more relaxed intro. There's a song I have in mind called Radial Head. And that was named from the engineer. He <laughs> named it because I said, this song sounds like Radio Head. And he'd always kind of like joke and add a different alternate name to all the session file names. So I think the next EP will start with that tune. That, that's cool. Uh, I think so. My personal favorite on the EP is the song I Miss You. So when, when you get feedback like that, someone listens to it and they're like, I think this is the best song. But it's, you know, in fractured attention spans, maybe someone's not going to get to I Miss You. Right. Or they're not going to get to a song that someone else thinks is the best. How 
how is how do you process information like that where you're like I think this is the best song or I think that is the best song and you know can you even do anything with that information as the artist I think from you know going back to being patient and you know really just accepting uh that an effort was put out you know I I I made this effort mm-hmm. I had a fantastic EP release show I had a, a great splash and some really nice reviews I look at this na- this period now, excuse me. I look at this period now as as a moment to casually promote the EP, you know, let mm-hmm. it swim in the world, make sure I'm covered and, and do my homework as far yeah. as um, you know, making sure it's all registered and all yeah. patented and all yeah. the, the legalese of it all. But I really accept the fact that it is it is that Roy Orbison CD that I just bought. You know, it's that it's that device that's out there in the world that I hope folks listen to it and I know they will. Um, but I'm very just relaxed in terms of just the, uh, the patience of it all, just allowing it to breathe and live. That was really the goal is just to have it swim in the world. So there's, you don't feel that pressure of, okay, I'm going to bomb every person I know on Facebook and Instagram with constant reminders that I did a new thing, which is, I think something that a lot of, especially younger bands get into, the record's coming out. We're going to promote it like crazy for these this month. And then after that, nothing, right? They're, they're going to go away and maybe do some shows until they're getting ready to do their next thing. So that's very consciously not your approach is what you're saying. Yeah, I think uh, the sheer amount of bombardment media-wise and, and promo-wise in the lead-up to the show, which I thought was a good effort as well. You know, it was very accurate, very effective. I always had this countdown in my Instagram stories that right. I think it, it always cracked me up because it was like this countdown, <laughs> like what is going to happen? But um, yeah, I think, you know, the more I do the promo, the closer I get to doing, you know, the closer I get to aiming to be a character on the internet, you know, before I know it, I'll be, and I'm not disparaging anyone who does this, but the closer I'll be doing a silly dance on the internet. You know, I, I like to have a nice old school approach when it comes to promotion. I don't have a record label, but if I was, if I were my record label, you know, I'd keep it very old school, 1999 through 2001 in terms of just, you get a little bit information from the artist, you know, you'll come to the show, enjoy the show, yeah. and then we just dial back a little bit. I really don't want to bombard people because the music's going to be there. You'll see me. I'll be here. Don't worry. You know, that's my attitude. In thinking about what you were going to do with a release show, um, I'm in Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh is not a big city. You're in, in New York City, which is, of course, a gigantic city. How do you fit into a scene or how do you even promote a show when there's quite literally thousands of other events happening on that same night? Well, I, I feel like the, um, you know, first off, I'm lucky to have a community. Uh, I rent a studio space or a practice space, one of those dingy basement rooms yeah. where you, you write punk tunes, basically, <laughs> uh, right in, in Bushwick, Brooklyn. And between that community there and a dear friend of mine who just started a new band called Night Music, his name is Jamie Fry. He's been a stalwart in the community. He's really always captured everyone's attention and, and just has that rock and roll heart of gold, that right. same type of kindred spirit. I remember as a kid uh, in high school, creating my own DIY CDs. He, he captures that as well. So he really helped me in building the bill for that specific EP release show. 
and and capturing that Brooklyn um, scene. You know, some really fantastic bands, Holly Overton, a.k.a. Holly O, and the Jupiter Boys. It was a fun way to have this outside of Hollis Brown, outside of my secondary market that I've always right. been a part of, you know, the diehard fans of Hollis right. Brown. Um, I got to work with some real Brooklynites and that, that was really beneficial for the show. They brought a, a really nice draw and, and certainly helped supplement the whole operation. Do you feel yeah. like you could take what you're doing as a solo artist and maybe go to Nashville or go to Chicago, go to a smaller market and maybe have more success? Or is that not even something you care about because you're a New York guy? Um, I would certainly, you know, with the experience of doing national tours and also doing DIY national tours, mm -hmm. we are lucky with Hollis Brown. I had the whole layout. We had opened for Vintage Trouble and a band called Thunder um, and um, from Seattle. And, you know, that experience of booking myself, that's totally on the line there. Um, is it absolutely necessary at this moment? I don't think so. First off, the whole ticketing methodology now I'm very interested in. I was able to work with Ticketmaster and Mercury Lounge to find a way to avoid these online feeds. Yeah, yeah. I basically purchased tickets and became my own box office without the fees. And that's a methodology that I'd like to adopt for maybe every show in the future. Cause again, I'm allergic to these fees. I don't want anything to do with it. It just rubs me the wrong way. Right. Like Pearl jam from back in the day, yeah. you know, we, <laughs> they had the same issue. Um, so any shows that I want to do, I want to make sure that I cover that specific you know, base there. I don't want folks to pay six bucks for literally nothing. And uh, until I find a, a proper plan of attack for that, you know, I'll, I'll make my way any which way. But, you know, there's really no rush. Like I said, I'm here to put out the tunes online and, you know, give you a, give you guys a great live show. But it's it's really no rush for me. Cool. Uh, one thing I also read in some of your promo materials is that um, your uncle is Dave Gone. So why not just, so I think everyone who's listening to this knows uh, Dave Gahn is the singer main guy for Depeche Mode. So why not just use your industry strings of your uncle and, and get ahead that way? I know. I always, uh, I think there was an interview question that was like, name your best headline or name like a headline you'd create. And I was like, nepotism, baby. <laughs> Not here, you know. I, you know that was going to be the story. It's like there's no nepotism. I got, I got nothing. I appreciate the fact that I was given some key insights on how to perform and and just general uh, encouragement. Right. And in fact, if you see on the press photos, that jacket uh, was provided by Jay Lindeberg for one of their tour from one of Depeche Mode's tours okay. back in 2006. Cool. You know, it was a play sponsored jacket That's and cool. that was handed to me and that basically has been my rock and roll cape a lot of the photos <laughs> you'll ever see of me anywhere with hollis brown even the bottom dollars in 2011 you will see that jacket because it's really accompanied me in every step of the way so i'd say that contribution has been cool. the most important facet when it comes to my relationship with my family cool um and then maybe one last thing here is accessibility in in what you're doing um, is your objective, uh, you mentioned punk and, you know, and maybe not having so much fun playing 
in a dive to five people because we've all done that. And I agree with you. That gets old um, and, and not so much fun anymore. Are you creating music that you dig that also happens to be accessible? Or are you looking at accessibility first before what you might enjoy the most? Uh, it's really a matter of economics in terms of providing the best sounding set of songs. Mm -hmm. That's really what um, dictates the pace. But I'll, I'll tell you that there are a lot of different songs available. For example, I, I have a whole collection of punk related tunes and, and very almost King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard approach. Cool. Um, there's there's a lot of fast tunes. There's also an element of electronic, element of hip hop. I don't rap per se. Hopefully, I'll give it to someone else. But I do have the rhythmic uh, meter. I you know I, I have right. that gibberish performance. But um, to answer your question, I think uh, I'd like to drop all the tunes as soon as possible. And and I'm so grateful that Illustrator received a nice warm welcome into mm -hmm. this world from everyone and the ability to talk about that because it does open the door to just throwing out music and, and everyone's going to enjoy what they're going to enjoy. I, I have no, uh, no qualms for people's tastes. I just want them to listen and uh, hopefully they let me know if it sounds good. That's cool. Um, I will drop all the links for Chris's stuff. Uh, you can certainly check them out on Bandcamp. Uh, it's all available on all the normal streaming places as well. You should definitely check it out if you're a fan of any alternative rock band. You, there will certainly be something there that you like. Chris, thanks a lot for taking the time and coming on the show, man. I appreciate it. Absolutely. My pleasure, Paul. Man.